Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, um, This morning we have someone that wanted to share something um, that was really on their heart. And I'm going to let Rob come share. All right, so we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. So, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise If it is true, then the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in all Adam, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, by humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Sit down there, Aaron. I want to begin by mentioning something that's kind of been in my mind a lot lately, and I've been thinking about a word that um, I think that I need need to really work on a lot, and I think our church can work on a lot, and it's just the word family. Um, And I don't mean our individual families. I mean our church as a family. And uh, it dawned on me that a lot of times I don't pay a lot of attention and care about people that are part of the church family and I ask God to give me more of his love. And I want us to see that more operating more in the life of our church where we just learn to um, see other people, not just as, oh, there's so-and-so that I go to church with or there's a people over there that they kind of show up when we worship God. So it's just kind of a theme that I was thinking of for the coming year. And so I just want you to be thinking about that with me 
Um, what does it mean to be part of a, a spiritual family? And uh, again, I think we can improve a lot. Um, and I hopefully, hopefully over the coming year, we'll begin to be maybe more aware and observant of people around us and kind of wonder, well, I wonder what they're going through. I wonder what they might, um, I might could pray for that person or I wonder what they're like. Uh, get, might like to get to know more people in the, in the church and um, just kind of having a greater feel for that. In light of that, I, I would like to um, maybe just begin by praying. But before I pray, I just kind of want to know it, if you're here today and, and you have something that um, just really heavy on your heart um, because the people around you are, can, can pray for all they need to do is see a hand. If there's something really heavy on your heart today and that you would like, just kind of like to know that maybe somebody, because I'm going to pray for you, but would you kind of let us know if, you, if you're here in this room and you have something like that on your heart that's kind of heavy you'd like to pray for? Let me ask this as well. If you're here and you know someone that doesn't, you have someone you care about and they don't know the Lord, if there's someone on your mind, comes to mind even right now, do you have someone that you know that needs to know the Lord? You want to, you want to pray for them? Is there anyone here that has something going on in your life that's just difficult and it could be with your job, your future, and you, and you, seek, you seek wisdom of God? Would you, would you raise your hand as someone I would like more of that wisdom of God? Well, I'm going to pray with you right now, but before I do, let's take just about 30 seconds and you pray, you pray alone. You pray about that name, that thing, and then we're going to, I'll, I'll jump in, in, a, in a shortly and then we'll pray together. Father, thank you that you are able to hear, like all of us can pray at one time and it, it doesn't tax you at all. Every, all the people in the world, there's no telling how many people are literally praying right now. And you're capable of hearing every single prayer request as if they were the only person praying. That's how amazing you are. Thank you that you are never too busy to hear our prayers. You are never um, overloaded. Um, you can multitask like nobody ever could. And we're amazed when we think about you. And we bring our burdens to you, God. And I just pray, Lord, all of us know someone that needs Jesus. And we pray for them right now. We pray that we would get to see our loved ones, our friends family members come to faith in Christ and God if it would please you we would love to be involved in that process help us to have courage to speak and to be more careful to pray and even the way we live our lives would we would be a better um, at sharing the gospel and our lives would line up with the things that we claim to believe 
I pray right now, God, for people who have physical needs and there might be a surgery coming up this week. There might be news of something physical that's just happened recently. Uh, pray for Harry Powell who uh, had a surgery two days ago in Emory to try to extend his life for the liver troubles that he's had. Father, I thank you that Rob is here today and that you protected him when his heart was weak and vulnerable and he didn't even know it. Um, God, I thank you for letting uh, Jaden know that he had something going on that he needed medical attention and I pray for him. Father, I pray for people that are pregnant. I pray for people that are looking to you for big decisions, what to do after college, after graduation. I pray for people who are in a relationship and they're wondering if maybe it w this would be your will for them to be together and be married. Or I think of people who are lonely, God, and that you could meet their needs. And I pray that they would feel your presence even today, that you have not forgotten them and that you do love them very, very much. So, Father, we just pray also that you would teach us to act like a family. And We know that being in a family can be really hard. Often family really hurt our feelings or strike out at us or don't want to forgive or hold grudges. And we just know that that's true also for our spiritual family, God, that churches can actually be places of conflict. And so we pray that you would help us to learn to be more like Christ. And even today, speak to us through this passage in 1 Corinthians Oh, Lord, we want to we see your glory. We want to feel the weight of your goodness and mercy and love. And we just pray that you would speak a word directly into each of our hearts today, God. I just know that you're capable, Lord. You can take the word of God, Holy Spirit, and you can minister in such a way that you could actually simultaneously meet the need of every person in this room at one time. That's how capable you are. Help us to have open hearts and open ears and open minds to receive from you the blessing of your word and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this morning I want to talk about, I'm going to tie three things together that I think are kind of obvious in this passage as I begin to look at this, this text in 1 Corinthians 15. And so I want to talk about the, the, that Christ is risen, reigning, and returning. Okay? I tie those things. You'll see them as I walk through the test. You'll see clearly the, the, this passage is declaring Christ is risen. And then it's revealing to us and making us feel the weight of this most important um, truth, and that is Christ is reigning. And then something that gives us hope as we look forward and we make our way through and navigate what is often very difficult in this world, that Christ is returning. And so those three things make a very powerful anchor for our hearts and faith. So I want to talk about that. So like in any church, at any period in history, Christians can be dangerously affected by biblical ideas that are unbiblical ideas that kind of float around in the culture and in sayings and ideas that are maybe thought to be religious or thought to be biblical, but they're really not. 
And I'm sure that there are quite a few old tales and preacher sayings in these mountains that are maybe not in the Bible and some might even contradict biblical teaching. I think that's true anywhere you live. There's going to be people who are religious and they say things and they think it sounds good and sounds right and probably biblical. And I'll give just a two, just kind of, it's not any great big deal or anything, but you'll, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, um, God blesses those who bless themselves. Or that's kind of a saying, or the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. Um, but it doesn't quite, it does say money is a, a root of evil. Um, and so there's just different ideas. Well, one of the ideas that was floating around the Greek culture was that there, the body doesn't rise from the dead, that we're physical and spiritual beings, and the body doesn't really matter. Only matters is the heart and the spirit, and therefore what you do in your body doesn't matter. It had huge ramifications, but it was actually a very unbiblical idea, but it was floating around the church in Corinth. And so Paul's addressing the problem that that has, the impact that that is having upon some of the Christians in Corinth and would have upon everyone if they embraced uh, such a, a horrible or even heretical idea. So I, I want to begin by looking at, I want to pose this question. What if, what if Christ really didn't rise from the dead? What would be the problem with that? What if Christ really didn't rise from the dead? Because that's kind of what some of them are saying. It's like, well, the dead don't rise. Let's just, Paul is saying now that's a problem. And he lists about seven or eight problems. So let me tell you why that would be such a problem. Okay, what if Christ really did not rise from the dead? In verse 12 it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Like how can people in a New Testament church deny the resurrection of the dead? This is the truth that the church is built upon and stands upon. So uh, what notion, such a notion would be heretical, and creates a long list of insurmountable problems. Like that problem would be so big we'd never get over it. Problem number one, the whole, the whole Christian ship sinks. Like the whole thing sinks. There is no Christianity if Christ didn't rise from the dead. It's over. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Problem number two. Preachers are scammers. Like if Christ didn't rise from the dead, preachers are out there telling all these people that he did. They're the worst scammers of all. Missions and evangelism is a waste of time and Bible preachers and teachers are either ultimate hypocrites or the biggest doofs ever. Either they think they know that he didn't rise from the dead and they're just big fat liars or they think he did and he didn't and they're just idiots. Like they fell, they fell into the, the scheme. Like they're promoting the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time. They're crooks and they should all go to prison. In verse 14 it says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Like what a waste of time. What are you guys doing here? If Jesus didn't rise in the dead. Well, there's a whole lot of other things I'd be doing. On this. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Would you be here? I'd be doing lots of other things. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
I'm here because I believe that he did. Well, another problem if he didn't is, another problem for us is your faith is an absolute joke. Your faith is a joke. It's built upon nothing. It might as well be built upon a dried worm. And your faith is in vain, verse 14 says. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. Problem number four, the apostles are all a bunch of liars. The apostles are all liars. The entire New Testament is a giant lie and the world still needs a Savior and we are all doomed. The New Testament authors, the very ones who wrote the entire New Testament have committed perjury. In verse 15 it says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is like... Some people in the church make this statement. He says, whoa, whoa, hold on. Do you realize the ramifications of what you're saying? Create some problems. Problem number six, you are still under the wrath of God. Did I do five? Some of you counters? Okay, number five, even Jesus is not raised. The apostles are a bunch of liars. Even Jesus is not raised. Verse 16 says, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Like it destroys the whole gospel. Problem number six, you're still under the wrath of God. A dead Savior cannot help you. If Jesus' righteous life did not defeat his own death as a perfectly righteous man, if Jesus died and he didn't even rise from the dead, that means his, his life wasn't righteous enough to save himself. Then it cannot defeat your sins, a sinful man, if a righteous man can die and not live, then how can sinful people die and expect to live? If Jesus did not come out of the tomb, then neither will you. You still have much sin to pay for. The day of judgment still hangs over your head. And in verse 17 it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. When you says you're still in your sins, it means you're still guilty. So all you people are guilty. You're wasting your time. You might as well go play golf or fishing, or go to get to the restaurant, hurry before the Presbyterians get out. Um, problem number seven, the dead are dead and gone. Jesus didn't rise, then the dead are dead and gone. They're gone. They're out of here. Death is the end. Lights out. Crickets, dirt, ashes. No lasting value, like a vapor of steam disappearing into the air. Being in Christ is of no advantage. You're trapped in an endless circle of life, just one tick from being out of time. Verse 18, he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's like no benefit. Problem number eight, Christians are pitiful. A sad sight. Totally miss out on all the fun of life has to offer. Living in prison, eating moldy bread. That's what basically about how much fun we're having. A most miserable life. In verse 19, it says, if Christ has... if in Christ, we have hope in this life only, and we are of all people the most pitied. A bunch of pitiful church. I, I love being part of a bunch of pitiful people. It's like, I can't wait. Let's go do something pitiful. Let's celebrate. On, let's uh, gather on Sunday mornings. This is pitiful. Come on, you want to join us? I'd love for you to join our pitiful group. It's the most pitiful thing you've ever enjoyed. Yeah. 
Christians are, would be, that would be a problem. So, first of all, I want to respond to that. Thank God for the pure gospel. Thank God for the letter to the Corinthians. Thank God for all their struggles, sins, trials, and false teachings. Thank God that somebody in the church at Corinth thought the dead might not rise. Because Paul wrote a letter to declare that they absolutely do. And we have people who say things in our day, in our time, that are wrong, and they relate very well to some of the things the Corinthians got into. There are people committing sins in our church, and in any church, and in our community, and our society, that the Corinthians were doing, and thank God that they did, because he wrote it in a book, and he recorded it, and gave us divine instruction on how to deal with our messed up church. Their messed up church created a letter from, the, from Almighty God with wisdom in there, contains so much wisdom, and we have the wisdom of that letter written to a bunch of sinners very much like us. The only real difference is a time gap. We're just as sinful as the Corinthians. And therefore the gospel that Paul delivered to them is just as meaningful to us as it was to them. It's just as real today. We serve a very honest and real God. And he says to you, I don't know what your problems were, but these folks back here have some problems and pretty much all your problems are covered under theirs. Like they did everything imaginable. And the gospel came to them with power and offered them a changed life. And so the, whatever you've done, the gospel says, the gospel says, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and there is the power of God that can help you. You can live a different kind of life. You can be delivered from sin and death. So praise God for that messy Corinthian church because it's going to help our messy church. Okay? So secondly, um, the first thing I was just listing out some of the problems and now I want to list out some facts. Some facts. Paul goes, okay, here's some problems. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, here's some problems with that um, false notion but let me take, come back and respond to that. First, he responds by kind of giving, lining out these ridiculous, um, well, here's the, here's, what, what, here's the problems. And then he comes over here and he says, let me tell you what actually is the truth. These are really good. Number one, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, fact number one, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We are told this to be a fact. And we will not budge nor fudge. Okay, we're not moving. This is our position as a church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is risen. We proclaim that on Easter and the week after and the week after that. 52 weeks out of the year, we proclaim that Christ is risen from the dead. There's not a year, there's not a month, there's not a week, there's not a day that we move from this essential fundamental position that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is risen from the dead. He came and died on the cross for our sins. That little package that he gave in 1 Corinthians 15, the first couple of verses there, is like a, a doctrinal passage. It's like a creed. I delivered to you, first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, was raised from the dead on the third day, and then he appeared to all these people. It's like, this is our foundation. We have nothing without this, but we have everything with this. And so we're going to constantly tell people, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and so can you be. You put your faith in him, you can be risen. 
You don't have to go the way of death. You can go the way of life if you put your faith in Christ because Jesus went in the tomb and out. And you can, go in the, you can be with Christ so that when you go in the tomb, you come out. You can do the same thing. Okay, in Christ you can. Okay, so the first thing is Christ is risen. Secondly, he is the first fruit. He's the first fruit. In fact, he has been raised from the dead. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruit. Jesus went first. He was the first in and out of the tomb. Everyone else went in, but no one came out. Jesus was the first in and out. Mary, many went in, all have died, but he was in, he was the first one to go in and out. He was the first fruit of the harvest. The triune God has been working, plowing, planting, overseeing, managing, planting. Like a farmer. This is the way he says, he's a farmer. He's the first, and the first fruit from his farm. God was farming. Jesus was farming. The Holy Spirit was farming. And he was farming. He was working because he wanted there to be fruit. There's to be result. When God works, there's fruit. There's good things happen. He's never unproductive. God is the most productive worker that has ever worked in the history of the universe. He's created the universe. The universe is God's work. And the greatest work that God did was the work of sending his son to die and come out of that. He was working toward, all of history was working toward the harvest. And Jesus, when harvest time came, Jesus was the first fruit up from the ground. He is the first fruit. The triune God. Jesus came to work. He had a work to do. He worked for 30 years in the garden quietly. Then he worked for three years making final preparations. Then he went into a garden to pray. Then he worked in the court. Then he worked on the cross. He was working on the cross. I don't know if you know that. Jesus wasn't just dying on the cross. Jesus was working on the cross. He was working. He was doing the work. He was tilling the ground for the resurrection. He was planting the seed. And then he went into the tomb like a seed planted. And he came out. And that was the fruit. That was the first fruit of the mighty harvest. That was like the first fruit. I don't know if you ever farmed, but it sure is fun. Sure is fun when you got that garden and you see the first fruit. And you're looking like, oh, it's green. It's green. It's there. It's not yet. It's not ripe yet. But man, when that thing turns, you're like, you see the first fruit. But it's not, it's not done until it's ripe. And then it's magnificent. It's like, oh, man, that was good. This is a good crop. That first fruit, that's a good crop, man. This is good. This is going to be good. Jesus was the first fruit out of the ground. And the father said, oh, this is good. Jesus says, I feel good. This is good. My people need to know this is good. This is what my people are going to go through. My people are going to rise up from the dead. And they're going to be full of life like I am. Like he's the first fruit. He is our leader. He's the one first in, first out. Okay, it's beautiful. Death, fact number three, death started way back, way back with Adam and Eve in the the Garden of Eden. Verse 21, for as by a man, death came by, which which man did death come by? The, The first couple, Adam and Eve. Death came from our first parents failed us. Our first parents were like on the, um, they were tested and they failed the test. It's like, man. If only you guys had done better. On one hand, I want to say, Lord, if man, if I I I would never say this. I would say that, Lord God, I would have done better. I'd never say that. 
I am not nearly as in good a position to pass that test as Adam and Eve were because they came without a heart to sin. I have a heart to sin. I would have never passed the test. I never go. It's like Adam and Eve were the best shot we ever had. And they failed the test. And they set that whole thing up for disaster, but they also set Jesus up for victory. Because without their failure, we wouldn't know the victory of Jesus. Without their fall into sin, we wouldn't know the depth of the love of God. So some people say, wouldn't it have been better if Adam and Eve had not sinned? No, heck no, it wouldn't have been better. We wouldn't know about the power of the gospel. You don't know how deep God loves you until you know how deep he went for you. The Eden was a setup for Calvary. The death from disobeying God was the setup for our great leader who obeyed God. Our first parents did not. Death started with Adam and Eve in the garden. Life for us started with Jesus in the tomb. So death started for every human being comes in this world and we die. But life comes to us when we line ourselves up with Jesus Christ. And so let me just say it like this. There's two great leaders and we have to pick one. The great, the, um, we, have to, we have to change, we, have to, we need to move our um, membership. Our first membership is with Adam and the people, all hu- the human race. And the Bible says all of that race have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and will die and will go forever in hell to pay for their sins. That's the dilemma. But Jesus Christ came and he said, well, why don't you move your membership over here to me? And I will represent you. And I will atone for your sins and I'll take care of you if you'll trust me. Don't trust Adam. Don't trust this world system. Don't trust people. Trust me. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, we categorically move from one kind of people, the people of Adam, to the people of God and the people of Christ. We categorically move. It's the only move you can ever make like this in your life. It's one move. You You can make one move or no moves. If you make no move, then you go down. If you stick with Adam, you say, I don't want Jesus. I reject Jesus. I'm going to do my own thing. I like... Uh, our president, I like the, um, I like the, this person, I like that person, this guru, and their ten steps to the happy life. And I want this person for my best life now. And I want this, and I want that, and I want this, and I'm gonna follow all these rules. And I want a degree, and I'm gonna trust science. I'm gonna trust politics. And God, I'm gonna, I'm with men. I'm going with men, God. And God says, Well, then you're going down into the grave, and you're not coming out. And he says, but here's another offer. I offer my son and you follow him. You make him the captain of salvation. You make him the Lord of your life. You take up with Jesus and he'll lead you where Adam will not, men will not. He will lead you out of the tomb. Not just in you and leave you there. He will lead you out. And that's what this passage is saying. That because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then he wants to be your captain. He wants to be your high priest. He wants to be your lawyer and represent you on that day when you stand before God. You're either going to have to represent yourself. The only other person that can possibly represent you is only two people can represent you before the throne of God. And that's you or Jesus. And who are you going to, are you going to go with? Who's a better lawyer? You really think you're going to stand before God and you're going to make a case that you, don't, you didn't do anything wrong? You really think you're going to stand before God? And the rest of the, this chapter says Jesus rose from the dead and he is ready and prepared and capable and equipped. 
He is completely qualified to be your lawyer. Why would you pass him up? And that's, that's what this chapter is. Okay, and it says, Another fact is our Savior is alive and well and coming again. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Well, he can't be coming if he's dead. He had to rise, so he is risen and alive and well, and he's coming again. And the Bible says we know that Christ is coming. Fact number six, Jesus is totally victorious. Then comes the end, verse 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Everything that stands against God will be defeated. Doesn't look like it right now. There's a lot of people standing against God right now. Maybe you, I spent the first part of my life, if I, if I categorized my life in two sections, it was the time when I stood against God and then when I stood, stand, now stand with God. That happened when I was 15, so a lot more years on this side than that side. But the, for the first part of my life, there's only two sections of my life, and that's when I stood on my own and when I stood with Christ. And when I stood with Christ, everything changed. And everyone that stands with Christ will be defeated, utterly defeated, ruined, embarrassed, ashamed. Because you took your stand with the enemy of God. Don't stand with the enemy of God. Come over to God's eyes and he says, I'll stand with you. I'll rescue you. And I'll be totally victorious. There won't even be a shred of victory. There won't be anything to share. There are no silver medals, bronze medals. God in his kingdom gets everything. And he is reigning now, right now. In verse 25 it says, He must reign until, which means he's reigning right now. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Until that day comes. I don't know if you feel this way every day. Some days you wake up and it goes, Man, it sure looks like evil's reigning in our neighborhood. Sure likes evil's reigning in our schools. Sure likes evil's reigning on the internet. Sure likes evil, looks like evil's reigning in this country and that country. Man, there's terrible things happening. It doesn't always feel like God is reigning. My friend, God is reigning. Jesus is on the throne and he's reigning until he puts, until he puts. He will put all his enemies under his foot. Under his foot is a symbol of superiority and authority. Someone bowing down before the king, meaning until Jesus puts everyone who's trying to usurp his authority and trying to reject and fight against God, one day Jesus is reigning until that happens. It doesn't say Jesus is trying to get on the throne. He's working hard toward that throne. Jesus is trying to knock the devil off that throne. The devil's not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And we need to remember that because some days it doesn't feel like it and it doesn't look like it. And some days we're going through stuff and it surely doesn't feel like that's the truth. But it is the, it is the truth. And then he will defeat death itself and Satan, greatest enemy. That is death. Okay, so let me just mention when it says that Jesus, let me tell you how the relationship would kind of what Jesus is talking here when he talks about being he will reign and uh, there's an idea of subordination in here and it's like well how can Jesus be subordinate to the Father um, that's a great question and uh, it goes like this um, God the Father Son and Holy Spirit are three persons of the Trinity and they're equal in power and glory one's not greater than the other One's not more valuable than the other. One doesn't have more authority than the other. But they have a loving relationship where the father, what's happening here, the father is basically saying, son, 
I give you all authority. And the son says, thank you, Father. And I always want to do your will. This is how it works. It's like Jesus, they have a different role. And the father is always the father. And the son is always equal to the father. But they have this amazing relationship where there's no competition between them. And they work together. And the Jesus always says, I have come to do my father's will. I always have. I always will do my father's will. And the father says, I have always loved my son. And I always want to honor and lift up my son. And so it's a weird thing where even when there is subordination in the relationship, it's willful and joyful. And do you know when two people can make a decision to do something together? Um, do you know that the, um, the president and the vice president, one of them is not a more valuable person? They have different roles. Do you know in the church of Jesus Christ, I am not more valuable than any person in this room. But I have a role that God has given to me. And with that role comes some authority. But I am not a better person than anyone. I am not um, closer. I don't, I don't have a higher, um, you know, get more points. Um, I don't, I, we're equal. And sometimes I was like, Lord, I would surely love for someone else to be the pastor. And it's like, well, I've called you to it. It's like, yeah, but someone's so smarter. And instead, the Lord going, no, they're not. The Lord says, well, of course they are. And they're, um, I don't know, they handle situations better than they. Well, of course they do. Or they just know the Bible so well, and they're just so spiritual, and they've got an amazing prayer life. I could list a zillion things, and the Lord would go, yep, yep, yep. But I called you to this. You do what I've called you to do. Then I was like, okay, Lord, I submit. I surrender to the purpose you've given to me. It doesn't make me better than anyone. It terrifies me some days. It's like, Lord, I'd just really like to um, do something easier or more fun. Okay. So let me just say this. There's a thing in here about baptism of the dead. Um, Mormons make a big deal about this, and I think they turn it into a heresy. And the heresy is that you can do something for dead people. No, you can't. You can't do anything for dead people. You can't help them. You can't get them out of purgatory, nor can you move them from level heaven level 7 to heaven level 8. You can't do a flipping thing for a dead person. And you can't do anything yourself for yourself after you're dead. When you die, it's done. Case over. You are sent to the place you'll be forever. You make a choice in this life. And I think that's what Rob was trying to say. You make a choice in this life and don't put it off and don't dilly-dally around with it. But the, the, the good side of that question is it's the greatest thing you could ever do. So let me, let me describe now in closing how this works and fits together. Christ is risen. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus Christ went into the grave and he came up. It's Easter every day for us Christians, okay? It's always the day of resurrection because Jesus is alive and well. That is so important. I can't tell you how important that is. Oh, there's many days you just need to know. It could be two words, two, three words. It could be three words. It changes your day and it is he is risen. He is risen. And there's some days just like this is a terrible day. 
I've been in a terrible mess. I've done some stupid things and I've got myself into some mess and I've offended some people. And in your heart, three words could just come and rescue and says, He is risen. He is risen in the dark of the night when you don't want to do anything else. You have no power, no strength, and you feel totally defeated. He is risen. That means His victory will get you up off yourself and get you going. It's like you can look to that fact. He is risen. Secondly, He is reigning. He is reigning. It looks like someone else is reigning. It looks like someone else is on the throne. It looks like someone else is winning. But my friend, Jesus is reigning. Jesus is risen and Jesus is reigning. He is reigning right now. He is reigning over Silva. He's reigning over this church service. He's reigning over your life, your job, your school, your degree, your family. What you're going to go through at Christmas time. Some people say, I can't wait to go for Christmas to go home. Some people say, I don't want to go home for Christmas. It doesn't matter. He's reigning. Whichever your situation, he is reigning right now. Some people say, my life's a wreck. He is reigning. I don't know. I got these decisions to make. I, I'm probably going to make the wrong one. He is in charge. He is reigning. Look to him. Remember, he is risen. He can't reign if he isn't risen, but he is risen and he is reigning. And then you need to remember that he is reigning this world. He is in charge and he's making decisions and he's moving history toward the great day of his return. And so he is risen. He is reigning. He is on the throne right now. You may not feel like he's on the throne, but he is on the throne. And the problem is, is that sometimes our view of the throne gets blocked. We can't see the throne, therefore we doubt that he's on the throne. But my friend, whether you can see the throne or not, there's only one person on that throne. It's Jesus Christ who has risen. He has risen and he is on the throne reigning right now. Jesus is reigning over your courses, over your daytimer over your whatever you're watching on TV. He is reigning over the universe right now and he is reigning in such a way that he is moving all of history toward that great moment when he returns. He is returning. Our Lord is reigning. He is risen. He is reigning and he's returning, which means he's coming again. Jesus is coming and it's getting closer. It's got to be getting closer because we're spending time. Days are getting knocked off the clock and things are lining up because he's reigning in such a way that he's ruling towards his return. He is planning and strategizing everything and no one can derail the train of God toward the great depot when he comes. And he's coming. He's on his way and the train is running down the track right now. Don't know exactly where the depot is, but it's around the corner. And he's coming and I want to be ready. You want to be ready? I want to be ready. He is risen. He is reigning and he's returning. And we need to keep those three things. I can't tell you how differently you will live if you can keep these three things based upon the resurrection. This is the outworking of Jesus coming out of that tomb. He came out of that tomb. He is alive. He went to his throne. He's reigning and he's working towards his return. Everything is in motion and in rhythm. You will live differently if you live upon these truths. And it starts by simply saying, Lord, I'm leaving the Adams family. And I'm going into the house of Jesus. Okay? How about that? Is that a deal? Does anyone want to move today? Does anyone want to move houses? You tired? Adam's family's pretty crazy. Jesus' family is pretty incredible. And so as we sing this last long, I want to, I want to ask yourself, where do you live?
Whose house do you live in? You've been in, you need to get out of Adam's house before Tuesday or Uncle Fester gets you. Okay? But you need to be in the Lord's house. That's where there's no sweeter place to be because he is risen, he is reigning, and he is returning. Okay? And some of you could change address today. Call upon the Lord and you shall be saved. And just say, Lord, will you take me with all my mess and teach me how to live in light of the gospel? Father, thank you this day for all that you do for us. You are amazing. The gospel is amazing. It is the best news we've ever heard. And in our hearts, we believe it. And we want to live differently as a consequence that Jesus is risen, reigning, and returning. In his blessed name we pray. Amen.